Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Thanks for taking a moment to take a look at the book with us. I hold in my hand a five-hour, five-part series on the passion and prophecy. Now, of course, the passion is referring to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this audio series, I explain the connection between the passion of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, and what happened that week, and Bible prophecy. In this discussion, as we take a look at the book in the next few moments, we're going to talk about the place of the Passion. Where actually in Jerusalem was Jesus Christ crucified? There are several locations that have been suggested, but there's only one, according to the Bible, that is absolutely correct. Take a moment with us now, and let's take a look at the book, and we'll be back to tell you how you can get your copy of the Passion and Prophecy. All right, now, what I want to do is continue our series on the Passion and Prophecy. Our first session, we talked about the Passion, its theme, it, its type, and its time. And in particular, we had to specify a time that the Passion took place. In other words, the crucifixion did take place at a certain time. We have available, uh, for those of you that might have missed it, the chart which indicates that Jesus Christ was crucified 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Thursday, Passover, 30 A.D. And he had to do that to be involved in fulfilling all the typology and all that was surrounding the prophecies, looking forward to, for the Jewish people, their redemption. Of the feasts that were given, the seven feasts, of Israel or of God that were given to the Jewish people uh, were a prophetic, redemptive story for them, and it was going to unfold, and they, they missed it. They weren't paying attention, uh, but now as we move to the end times, we see that uh, the four, first four feasts have been fulfilled. The last three feasts are moving into position, and on our last session together, we'll talk about the fulfillment of these last three feasts. But in this session, I want to talk about uh, the passion, uh, the, excuse me, the place of the passion in prophecy. The place of the passion in prophecy. And as was the time very significant when we look at this, because in order for all of prophecy to be fulfilled, and, and what I'm doing in this time is not so much looking at indicators or signs of the times today, telling us how soon, although we will touch base with that tomorrow when I talk about the red heifer, but I'm giving us a foundational undergirding, realizing that prophecies in the past have been fulfilled, gives us an assurance of an anticipation of fulfilled prophecy in the future. If we can understand that everything is taking place just like God said it would, the only one that could pre-write history was God. That's exactly what he's done. And we see that that pre-written history has come to pass just exactly in absolute minute detail like he said it would. Now we're looking at the pre-written history that has not yet been fulfilled. But as we see what has happened, we can anticipate it will take place exactly like he says it will. And this, of course, authenticates the word of God to us. When we think about then the place it has to play a very important role in the overall scheme of what God is doing. The place of the passion in prophecy, very, very interesting. Now, I told you 
that uh, many times, and I think I mentioned this when I was announcing what we were going to be doing the other day, many times I would go into the garden tomb in Jerusalem. The garden tomb, one of the suggested sites for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I would go in there, one of their people would take my tour group around and he would do the guiding for the tour group that I had. Uh, we take about 10 or 12 tour groups a year to Israel. Love to have you come go with us on one if you would. But uh, when we were there, he would make this statement after telling us about all the particulars of this location and the significance of the history of the historicity of all of this location. He would make this final statement. You know, really, folks, in essence, it doesn't matter about the place. It's only important the person. And I listened to that for a long time. The place is not important. Only the person is important. And I started to think about that. And then having guided throughout all of Israel myself, and in fact all of the Bible lands, I realized that the place does have some type of importance, and we'll look at it deeper in just a moment. And then I started to think through, well, how do I determine the authenticity of a place? You go to Israel and you have guides and they take you through the land and you think that uh, what they're telling you is absolute truth. And in fact, you listen to these Jewish guides, unregenerate Jewish men that are guiding you through the land. And everybody comes and tells me, well, we got the greatest guide in the world. And I mean, he knows so much about the Bible, it's unbelievable. And nobody is better than him. And he knows everything there is to know. Well, that is not a true statement. Because they're unregenerate, number one, it's pretty difficult to tell you about the places of Christ with any great authenticity. But many of them make mistakes. But let me just give you one example. There is a traditional site on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee for the feeding of the 5,000. It's called Topka. And many of the tours only go there for the feeding of the 5,000. May I suggest to you, it is impossible that that is the location for the feeding of the 5,000. That's a total impossibility. If you study, all the Gospels have the feeding of the 5,000. That's the one event in the life of Christ that all the Gospels record in addition to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you study through, for example, John chapter 6, which is the most explicit narrative of the feeding of the 5,000, you see that they were in Capernaum and they got in a boat and they went to the other side. They went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now that's a nautical term. I know it's a nautical term, not because I'm so smart, but because I was on the Jesus boat with the man who built the Jesus boat. And he was taking me across the northern borders or shores of the Sea of Galilee, and we crossed an imaginary line, if you can picture in your mind, the, lake, the Sea of Galilee, uh, and it's shaped maybe something similar to my hand. Up here in the north, the Jordan River comes in, and then it exits out the south. And if you could put an imaginary line from where the Jordan River enters the Sea of Galilee to where it exits the Sea of Galilee, you put an imaginary line across the sea, which is 14 miles long, 7 miles wide at its widest point. And when you do that, you realize that that is the nautical term saying when you go from the eastern side to the western side, you have gone over the Sea of Galilee. Now, I was on the boat, and that's exactly what he explained to me. 
this invisible line border through there. So now we've crossed over to the other shore. You can be two feet on the eastern side of the Jordan River's entrance and go two feet on the western side and you've crossed over the Jordan River. And so for Capernaum, Capernaum, you wouldn't cross over the Jordan River. You go right next to the next little town. But they crossed over. And then when he fed the 5,000, they then crossed over and went back to Capernaum. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you're going to go into the land, let's go to the place. How did I determine which was the place there? The Bible. Biblical geography was significant in me understanding the authentic place where Jesus fed the 5,000. And that's how I start to learn. I, I talked to you about the, uh, the location for the, uh, for the transfiguration. They went to Caesarea Philippi. They never left Caesarea Philippi. All I read was the text in the Word of God. Biblical geography comes out of the text of the Word of God. And so you authenticate a site or a place in biblical understanding or events by the Word of God. That's number one. Secondly, then you will resort to tradition. Tradition comes pretty strong when you're trying to determine the authenticity of a place. And thirdly, you look at the archaeology, the archaeological remains. Now, notice how I put those in the order. The Bible first, tradition second, archaeology third. Mark that down because we pick up an archaeological textbook and we think that that is the gospel. Nobody knows anything more than an archaeologist. That's not true. You know archaeology is not a true science. Archaeologist is an evolving science. You know where they get much of their information to determine the authenticity of an archaeological find? From literature. And in biblical archaeology, from the Bible. And so the Bible is the number one criteria for authenticating a place. Then tradition, number two. And by the way, tradition does not override the Bible. And then archaeology, number three. And archaeology does not override either tradition or the Bible. I, I, by the way, I came to the conclusion that archaeology was an evolving science by talking to the chief archaeologist in the state of Israel as it relates to Jerusalem and the dig, uh, the man who, Hillel Giva, who did the archaeological dig in the uh, old city of Jerusalem, the most extensive dig, archaeological dig in the history of Israel. Hillel Giva is one of my guides and a personal friend, and we've done television programs with him. And he's the one that said, we're just an evolving science. We don't know it all. I mean, you go down to Jericho, and you've got 42 different opinions from archaeologists as to everything around Jericho. And so make sure you understand it, and this is important for your Bible study. Authenticate a place by the Bible, by tradition, and then by archaeology, and in that particular order of priority. Indeed, the location of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to understanding how the Passion worked to fulfill Bible prophecies from the ancient Jewish prophets. You've been listening to a section of an audio series, five hours, five different parts of it, entitled The Passion and Prophecy. It's a study that you need to have. We talk about the period of the Passion, the place of the Passion, the red heifer. How does the red heifer play into 
into this significant end-time series. And the Song of Songs, that's the Song of Solomon, plus the Mount of Olives, a location essential for the return of Jesus Christ. All of this available on this series, The Passion and Prophecy. You can call our toll-free number if you'd like to get your copy of it. It's 877-674-3298. Once again, that number, 877-674-3298. It's toll-free from across America. Call right now to order your copy of The Passion and Prophecy. Or you can go to our website, www.prophecytoday.com, and make your order that way. Whichever way you decide to get your copy of The Passion and Prophecy, you need to have it so you can study it very, very soon. Thank you so very much for taking a few moments with us to take a look at the book. I'm sure that as you study with us this very important subject, you're going to realize how soon the return of Jesus Christ actually really is. In fact, the rapture, which is the first step in the second coming of Christ, could actually take place at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... 